listening to the Jelly Donut Podcast. I'm Ryan, your host. Join me as I talk to the best and brightest in finance and economics. We'll go beyond just theory and discuss some of the most important real-world macro questions of our time. What happens next and how does all of this end? Pull up a seat and listen in. We'll talk about it coming up next. Welcome our newest sponsor, Baron Fig. Whether you need pens, notebooks, or bags, they have you covered. Baron Fig makes tools for thinking, and they'll help you do your best thinking at home, work, and in between. And if you're a podcast fan, the small little notebooks they have are great for taking notes to refer back to later. I've been using their products now for, gosh, over five years, and I love the craftsmanship and attention to detail. So if you like the podcast, Show your support to Baronfig. Go to baronfig.com and use our code JDP10. That's JDP10, and you'll get 10% off your first purchase. So go check it out right now while you're thinking about it. Today's show is brought to you by Kova Coffee. Kova is a specialty roaster out of Portland, Oregon, and they specialize in single origin coffees. They're committed to long-term, sustainable partnerships with coffee producers. Now, if you're like me, I love coffee. I like to start off with usually one or two cups. I make it by hand at home with a pour-over, but it doesn't matter how you make it. You could be using a Mr. Coffee machine. It doesn't matter, but what does matter is the beans. You have to start with really high-quality beans, and you'll always make sure you have a great cup. So just say no to those burnt, over-roasted corporate coffee beans that you find at a grocery store and upgrade your coffee game. I'm going to make it real easy for you. Here's what you do. Just go to covacoffee.com, that's C-O-A-V-A, coffee.com, and use our code JDP10. That's JDP10, and you get $5 off your first purchase. Do it right now while you're thinking about it. You'll be happy you did. Today in the show, we have Grant Williams. Grant has held senior positions at a number of investment banks and brokers in London, Tokyo, New York, Hong Kong, Sydney, and Singapore. He is currently an advisor to several asset managers and is a regular speaker at investment conferences around the globe. His newsletter, Things That Make You Go Hmm, started in 2009 and has grown to become one of the most popular and widely read financial publications in the world. Enjoy my conversation with Grant Williams. Grant, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. The, the donuts haven't arrived, by the way. <laughs> well, it's great to have you here. After the show, we're going to make sure we send out a, a dozen donuts or maybe a baker's dozen. And hey. once this uh, virus is, is past us, hopefully. So, well, Grant, it's great to have you here. First question I like to ask and uh, start out to frame the conversation is going back to 2008 Tell us about what you were doing and what was going on through your mind at the time. Um, yeah, well, I, uh, I was down in Australia back then in Sydney uh, working for Credit Suisse. And um, I'd, I'd moved there from New York. And so I'd, I'd kind of been paying attention while I was in the U.S. Uh, to 
the housing bubble as it as it had kind of been inflating. This is back in two thousand five, and I got down to Australia and was and was uh, really kind of digging into all that stuff with with a lot of the condo developers, a lot of the places like Miami where there are a lot of subprime loans. And, and what was interesting, I, I talked to a whole bunch of people down in Australia about it, and they they were really not fussed. They said, "This is an American problem. It's not our problem. There's nothing to do with us." Um, which you know, it was pretty clear to me that wasn't the case. Um, and sure enough, you know, when 2008 hit, there were, there were a lot of people down in Australia suddenly saying, hey, you know these subprime things? What, explain them again to me. How, how do they work? What are they? Uh, so it, it's funny that it was a crisis that if you were in the U.S. and you've been paying attention, you could see it building. If you were outside the U.S., um, hard to believe now, but but the world seemed a little bit more – uh, disconnected back then, you know, it, it felt like you every crisis didn't need to be a global crisis, um, and certainly that was the case in Australia. Uh, so they they kind of ignored it until it kind of hit them square in the face. So, um, so yeah, that's where I was, and that's what I was doing. It was it was obviously uh, an extraordinary period to go through. Um, I was fortunate in that I suspect for me it was slightly less traumatic on a day to day basis because. Um, uh, you know, I'd been expecting something like that to happen, not to the extent it did, but uh, but I'd been concerned about um, a, a potential um, downdraft like we saw in the market. So, uh, so I was I was as prepared, I think, as I could have been, both mentally and and from position wise. But but still, the, the severity and the extremity of it, you know, took me completely unawares. Right, and now when we fast forward to present day, so when we started this podcast. This was going back to late 2019, and this is going on, let's see, over 20 episodes now, almost 30 episodes, and the market has changed a lot just in a few weeks, but definitely even even a few months. So let's bring us to present day and, and how you're looking at markets right now. Well, I, th- I think it was uh, Lenin who once said that uh, there are there are decades when nothing happens, and there are weeks when decades happen, and that feels like what we're going through now. One of those periods where, where there's some <clears throat> extraordinary things happening in in every asset class in the world, really. Um, and this is symptomatic of, I think personally, uh, an entire system that has, if not reached the end of its useful life, is certainly approaching that. And I think we're starting to see the stresses and strains that that you get on financial systems when they run out of road. And there's a bunch of people who've been talking about this for for a number of years and looking into the future. And of course, the the problem is always when. It's it's never so much uh, problematic figuring out the what. But if you get the when wrong, then it can look like you got the what wrong. And I think there's a lot of people who've been talking about things like we're seeing now happening. for quite some considerable time, because it's it's been apparent this is where we were headed, um, and now we're here. Obviously, it, it's lasted a lot longer than I think many people thought it could, uh, and and there's still no certainty that they don't pull out some kind of stick save uh, to rescue this from a, a complete uh, Great Depression type outcome. But when you look at things like the job numbers yesterday. In America, initial claims being over three million people, three point three million people. Yeah, you know, that is a, an extraordinary number. That is a thirty standard deviation outsider, which 
theoretically should never happen, but it has happened. Uh, and the market went up yesterday. And of course, the market, the equity market certainly went up yesterday because it was rubbing its hands at all the lovely stimulus that's going to come its way. Um, and I think this is uh, another sign, and there's a few of them around at the moment we can talk about, if you like, about the, the possible return of inflation. Um, and so it feels like we're at a point where there is going to be uh, the kind of paradigm shift that we haven't really seen in, in 40 years, and that is the return at some point to an inflationary environment. And it's likely to be driven uh, by the amount of money that's going to be printed to, to counter this deflationary shock. Um, and, and if we do have that that kind of shift in an entire environment, then then I mean, literally everything changes. and People need to think very, very differently about the next 40 years than they have about the last 40 yeah, that brings up a great point. And one of the central themes on the podcast here is that battle between inflation and deflation. And we've been following some of the work that you've been doing. And uh, Real Vision has had a lot of great coverage on this. And we had also Ben Hunt on the show, which has a kind of unique perspective on this as well. I'd like to also mention to listeners to definitely check out the episode you were on with Chris Martinson on Peak Prosperity Podcast. We're going to link it in the show notes, but this was just a few weeks ago or maybe a month or two ago. I can't remember exactly now, um, but you guys talked a lot about some of the things going on right now, not specifically, but some of the general things that you were talking about in that episode. A lot of things are slowly playing out and we're really kind of getting it a peek into what outcomes might be. So you talked about in that particular episode, this pull between the inflation and deflation. And one of the key points there is just talking about where the global growth is going to come from. And a lot of that is driven by demographics. So talk about your latest thinking there about just where, where growth will come from. Well, I mean, the demo, demographics is destiny. I mean, that was said many, many years ago, and it's mm-hmm. it's arguably the most important thing for people to understand. But but big picture ideas like demography and what a country might look like a generation into the future are very, very difficult for people to to weave into their investment process because because for a lot of people. And and ever more so as as this bull market has run its course, uh, people's time horizons become extraordinarily compressed. And the longer this goes on, the more instant the gratification required by by many people. And so, trying to talk to someone about an investment that is based on a a trend change that could take a generation to play out is is for most people not appealing. It's just not something they want to put their money in and forget it for 30, 40 years and come back to it. So you, a, a generation ago, these were ideas that that were slightly easier for people to embrace because they didn't have this constant bombardment of new ideas every day, whether it be social media or or um, you know TV or whatever. You, you're being bombarded with ideas every day. And the idea that all these ideas are going to make you money it, it it tends to make you more short term oriented, and, and I think one of the one of the changes we're going to see as you as you get a shift in the investing environment, if if inflation does return, you are going to see a repudiation of this short term mentality and this idea that everything is a get rich quick scheme. I, I was talking to someone the other day and saying you know, investing is a get rich slow scheme, 
And that's, I suspect, what we're going to go back to. People will look at inflationary uh, trends. People will look at demographics. People will start to look at these longer-term um, time horizons, and everything won't be about the, the latest hot fad in the markets that is going to you know, make you an instant millionaire. And, and frankly, the sooner that kind of mentality gets turned around, the better. Yeah, and when you look at the inflationary expectations, a lot of people have been talking over the past months and years about how there is no inflation because of technology. And when you look at these forces, as you mentioned, like demographics, but especially technology and automation and globalization is people have talked about kind of eliminating inflation and that's the reason why it's not showing up now it's also kind of laughable because the way the fed measures inflation and other central banks it might not be you know the true kind of level of prices rising but when you look at the the technology piece is that something where investors are getting that wrong where they should be looking more at the kind of global macro and the the fed printing and the money sloshing around the system? Uh, you know, I think that's the perfect uh, illustration of what I was just talking about. You know, it's it's been fang stocks. It's been technological advances. It's been individual stocks that, that have got people excited for for quite some time now. Yeah. Um, but but if we move into a different environment, then you, you have to rethink your assumptions. And it's if we move into an inflationary uh, environment, then you are going to want to own commodities. You're going to want to own boring copper and wheat and silver and gold and, and things like that. And they're not exciting. They're, they're not exciting. They, but these are the things that in an inflationary environment, you need investments that will work for you to counteract the forces that will, over time, erode your purchasing power. And that's not sexy and it's not cool and it's not great fun. It isn't any of those things, but but it's 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 like playing defense, right? I mean, if if we get into an inflationary environment, the system is working to confiscate your purchasing power every day, and so rather than looking to make money, the first thing you have to do is protect your money. And 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 when I say money, I mean the purchasing power of that money. So suddenly you stop worrying about well, what's the next um, what's the next tech stock that's going to double, because if your purchasing power goes down more than 50%, it doesn't matter if your stock's doubled in nominal terms, uh, you're worse off than you were before because you can buy less with that that money if you, if you sell the shares. So we, we go back to a period where you have to think to yourself, what is going to hold its value? What is going to protect the purchasing power of, of my capital? Um, and and, and there, are, there are plenty of examples of this through history. We, in the West, we haven't seen a period like this really since the since the 1970s. But just take a look at take a look at Venezuela. I mean, that's a, a perfectly good example. Recently, you know, the, the stock market was up multiple thousands of percent, and everyone's. Too, I mean, it was the best performing stock market in the world. But of course, the, the value of uh, the currency went through the floor, uh, unless you own gold, in which case gold outperformed in purchasing power terms the stock market and the currency by, by a long way. People people actually became much wealthier having owned gold through that inflationary uh, disaster. But because we haven't had an inflationary disaster in the developed world markets, we, we kind of forget about the playbook. We forget about what you have to do to protect yourself through periods like that. And all the things that do that have really become very boring. Um, and that's fine. But, but like everything, these are pendulums that swing. And when pendulums reach their extreme, they go back the other way. And I think what we're seeing now 
across the global financial system is the strains you get when a pendulum is 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 kind of reaching the end of its arc. And so at the very worst case, people need to sit down and think to themselves, okay, what if, you know, what if this this environment is ending? What if it is changing? What if this is a pendulum that goes back the other way? What does that world look like? And and generally speaking, it it, it looks a, a lot like the antithesis of the world you've just been in, which for us is going to be an inflationary environment. So read some history, look at what happens during inflations, look at uh, what you need to do to protect yourself from the confiscatory nature of inflation, and and decide for yourself. If you think that that's not where we're going, okay, at least you've done the thinking. If you decide that's where we are going, uh, and you know, Lord knows we've all done pretty well. If we've been in the markets this last decade, everyone's made an awful lot of money that, realistically speaking, given the economic growth in the world, they shouldn't have made. So you've been kind of given a free pass here by the efforts of central banks to reinflate asset prices. So if you think that that's running out of steam, then it makes sense to protect your gains. If you think we're going the other way, it makes sense to protect your purchasing power. To, to me, it's really that simple. Yeah, and the, that makes a lot of sense when you're looking at commodities, when you're looking at things that uh, protect purchasing power. There's been some talk about looking at equities that pay a dividend and looking at more um, of the value tilt and looking at those type of companies that might act more like a fixed income in- instrument or maybe something like a preferred share. But how are you looking at those type of equities to be able to weather that storm and, and have that pricing power to be able to keep up with inflation? Do you think that's something to, to where investors should be looking? Yeah, I think dividend-paying equities are going to be um, at a premium. Um, yeah, funnily mm-hmm. enough, if you look at something like uh, the energy sector, given what's gone on recently, you can buy uh, – I was writing about this and talking to a good friend of mine, David Hay, about the MLP sector, where you can you can get dividend yields in the teens, in the low to mid-20s in some places. Now, there's no guarantee those dividends won't at some point uh, be trimmed back, mm-hmm. but these these dividend yields are available – but to pick them up, you have to step into places that are being absolutely battered in this market downdraft. And there's no guarantee that they won't go lower. So I think you're right. I think you need to look for, for dividends, but but it, it's not as easy as just picking a stock that currently has a good dividend yield. You have to understand its balance sheet. You have to understand the likelihood of it, it cutting that dividend. You have to figure out the kind of uh, haircut you're going to take in the stock price if this continues. No, it's, it's very difficult. Um, and and I think the times that we are in now and the times I suspect that are going to be with us for the next while, extended period, uh, are very dangerous times to throw your money into passive instruments. This is another pendulum that I suspect is reaching its its, its apogee, and that is this move from active management to passive management in, in order to save costs. Um, we've seen the damage that the, the ETF bond funds have done in the market, we've seen what they've done in the gold mining shares, um, where passive money uh, is is flowing out of things which have a mismatch with the underlying liquidity of the instruments they represent. Uh, and these problems are going to continue. Um, this 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 choppy environment, this volatile environment, is going to be with us for for some considerable time, I suspect. Yeah, and when you look big picture at this outlook, 
as far as the inflationary and deflationary forces. You've talked about in the past how the long-term goal of, of central banks is to inflate away their debt and it's going to be this kind of race to the bottom. And now it looks like that's going to really start accelerating. And so when you look kind of from a big picture, how do you think this plays out? You know, let's look at a few different scenarios. So the first scenario, do you see the long end of the curve, like maybe getting away from the Fed or maybe not getting away from them, but having them be able to kind of adapt and and change their policies or? Well, the name of the game is right now is keeping the whole thing together. That's it. Yeah. Right. Uh, I don't think they're thinking about anything other than that right now is how do we keep stability in the system? How do we stop um, asset prices deflating very quickly uh, and and very hard? How do we manage the currency? There's all these things going on, but it's all about crisis management. Um, Look, the Fed have all kinds of tools at their um, disposal. And, And if you think they won't, cap yields or, you know, yield curve control is a very real thing, they, they will do all of these things. Mm-hmm. Whatever whatever the situation demands, they will do. Uh, ultimately, this is all going to come out and be reflected in the currency. In, in a free-floating world, that's that's where you will see the damage done by any measures they take. So so people need to be paying attention to currencies, particularly the dollar right now is, is, is strong. Um, it looks like it's wanting to go higher as as the kind of panic uh, extends and people are looking for quote unquote safe assets. But we are now in truly uncharted territory, and and the bailouts that we're seeing go through. I mean, as you and I are recording this, they've passed the uh, the House has passed the relief bill in the U.S. There's another two trillion thrown on top of the pile, but these bailouts are now. It's difficult to see where that stone stops rolling. Uh, with you know, 3.3 million initial claims, they'll turn into continuing claims next month, and we're going to see um, those numbers all ratchet higher. How do you how do you say no to a bailout at this point? You know, back in 08, we bailed out a few banks. Um, now we're talking about bailing out a few industries, whether it's hotels or restaurants or airlines or, God forbid, cruise lines. But alongside that, we're talking about bailing out families. So how do you then decide which industry doesn't get a bailout? How do you decide which family doesn't get a bailout? Um, how do you do that? It, it becomes very, very difficult. And so we are, we are in the era of helicopter money now. It's here. And that is the thin end of a very painful wedge that leads to inflation. If the solution is print more money, uh, they're going to have to finance that. They are going to sell a lot more bonds. The U.S. deficit is going to blow out. And that makes the dollar a much less sound currency. Now, the advantage they have is that at the, at the same time, they're going to be doing it in Europe, they're going to be doing it in Australia and Canada and the U.K. And so relative to other currencies, the dollar might still look like uh, you know an attractive proposition. But the one thing that all of them are going to uh, be very weak against is gold. And and this is why I think when people like my friend Brent Johnson talk about the dollar and gold rising at the same time as being a sign that we're really near, nearing the end of this uh, this system that we've built around ourselves, I think that's where we are. I think you, you might well see the dollar rise. I, I don't think it'll be for too long. I don't think it'll be too far, but I could be wrong. But I'm 
I'm reasonably confident now that the gold price is about to start dislocating from currencies and moving higher against all of them. You know, we've seen it in just about every currency except the dollar. I think the dollar is the only major currency where uh, it, gold is not at new high prices, but it certainly is in you know Aussie dollars and euros and yen and sterling and all kinds of other currencies. Um, it's just a matter of time before uh, I think it happens with the dollar. Yeah, and you've talked about in the past how gold is something that you want to own for insurance policy and the way to think about it is kind of being another currency and the wrong way to think about it is, okay, I'm going to buy this at 1500 thinking it's going to go to 2000 because there's plenty of other things you could speculate on if, you, if you're looking for that kind of uh, risk profile and, and gain there. So talk a little bit about how you're looking at gold. I think that was a really interesting way to look at it because a lot of people don't think of it that way. And then more recently, we've seen the physical price be disconnected from the paper market. Talk a little bit about the outlook here. Well, I, I, to me, gold is a currency. I mean, gold is many things, but I think first and foremost, it's a currency. And if you if you start to think about it in currency terms, it becomes a lot simpler to understand, you know, really where we are. Where we, everybody who goes overseas on on holiday has no problem looking at the exchange rate and working out if they're going to have an expensive holiday or a cheap holiday. You know, between booking the flights and uh, you know, you watch the currency like a hawk. If you're going from the US to Europe, you watch the euro. And if you think the euro is cheap, you'll maybe buy some euros because you know you're going on holiday there and you're going to mm-hmm. spend them. Uh, and it, and it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a construct that's very familiar to all of us. Um, but very few people look at gold that way, uh, which I think is a mistake, particularly now. You know, gold, if you'd have bought gold in um, 2013 in Australia, for example, the uh, if you'd have bought let's call it three hundred thousand uh, US dollars worth of gold in Australia in two thousand thirteen, it would have cost you with the with the Aussie and the US being just about one for one, it would have cost you three hundred three hundred thousand Aussie dollars. If you had that gold in your savings account um, and today you wanted to go and exchange it for currency, it was three hundred thousand dollars US, three hundred thousand dollars Aussie. If you exchange it for US dollars today, you'd get uh, about half a million dollars back. If you exchanged it for Aussie dollars, you'd get $800,000 back. So if you just think of it in those terms, uh, think of it as a currency, yeah, it, it starts to make sense. And, and, and I think that the difficulty people have with, with buying gold, particularly physical gold, is we're so used to handing over money for something as a purchase. Um, but when mm-hmm. you buy gold, you're not really doing that. You're just exchanging your your money from one currency to another. You just happen to be given something physical in return for it. Um, and if you can think of it in those terms, uh, I think for many people, it, it helps turn a light on that is a very important one to turn on, and that is an understanding of what real money is uh, and what real wealth is as opposed to currency because they're two completely different things. You know, The dollar is a currency. It's fiat. Uh, it's printed at the order of the government and the treasury. Um, it's not wealth. It's not money. Gold is money. It, it has been for thousands of years, and it, and it will continue to be so. Yeah, and then I think playing devil's advocate here is looking at, as you mentioned, Brent Johnson, and he's done some work as far as the dollar 
and gold rising together. When you look at the dollar being the world's reserve currency, there isn't anything that you could think might take its place except maybe return to a gold standard or a partial standard. There's been some talk about China backing their currency, maybe partially with gold and different things like that. I mean, you've talked in the past on on podcasts and through some of your work about um, oil being priced in things other than dollars more and more now. Um, but when you look at you know the U.S. dollar, I could see ver- gold versus other currencies. But when you're looking at the dollar, how do you? I guess what I'm trying to get at is like, where, where's the next step here? Is the next step like a, a, maybe a, some type of gold standard, or how would that play out? As far as the dollar being the world's reserve currency and and people having no other choice, kind of no sure. no other alternative. I mean, you talk there about people struggling to imagine um, a certain outcome, and that that's what generally these periods are. They're failures of imagination. People uh-huh. get very comfortable, and we've we've lived in, in, in a purely uh, fiat world now for the best part of 50 years. Um, and so it, it's the only environment any of us are familiar with, and, and people struggle to imagine Big changes in in the entire system in which they've in which they've been born and they've grown up, uh, but that's that's what you have to be able to do. And, and I, I gave a presentation um, late 2018 called uh, Cry Wolf, which is if you if you search for my name and Cry Wolf, you'll find it on the internet. Um, and it was really just a, a, an attempt to make people think about a gold standard more than just either writing it off because people will tell you, oh, it'll never happen. We'll never go back to the gold standard because obviously we haven't been in one for 50 years. So people tend to go, oh, fine, I don't have to think about that. Or there are people that say, we're going to be on a gold standard tomorrow. And the truth is, as always, is somewhere in between. But when you think about a gold standard, you just take the time to think it through. Um, the mistake that I posited in this presentation that people make is they is they they think of the gold standard as a choice that will get made. People in government will one day wake up and say, you know what, we need to go back to a gold standard. And the point I was making is that that that, that isn't and it never will be the way this happens. Uh, the, 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 the political world does not function well under a gold standard because it eliminates the kind of wanton spending that is so appealing to politicians. Gold standards tend to take place when the world is forced back onto them by reaching the end of a debt cycle, for example. And generally, you have to have several conditions in place for, for a gold standard to be uh, to be workable. And, and the one that I felt was missing currently was uh, social unrest caused by a, a failing stock market, caused by a failing financial system. And given what's going on in the world right now with, with uh, COVID-19, we are teetering on the edge of that. We're teetering on the edge of, you know, looting at grocery stores and who knows what. At the moment, the social fabric is is holding. Um, in some places, better than others, but it's holding. But we don't know how long this is going on for. We don't know about the, the safety of food supplies. We don't know about the, the safety of public order. And I think anybody who has been paying attention over the last month and has seen what's happened since this virus came to light the one thing that i think everybody has probably realized even if it's subconsciously on some people's part is just how fragile the entire system is 
you know, we had we had companies that have closed down for a week uh, in America, not all of America, but some parts of America, they've been closed for a week and you get 3.3 million unemployed. Um, mm-hmm. The entire system is so incredibly fragile, whether it's supply chains, whether it's social order, every single part of this system is fragile. There's no there's no robustness to this. It's, it's not resilient. Um, and that has been built up over the last 50 years as, as we've tried to make everything as cheap as possible, get margins as wide as we can so that the stock price goes up. Uh, we have created a very fragile system. And fragile systems at some point tend to buckle and fail. And I think the decision everybody needs to try and make in their own mind is whether they believe that we are on the edge of a system buckling and failing or they will find a way somehow through the printing of unlimited amounts of money to hold this thing together. I mean, that's a, that's a piece of critical thinking that everybody really needs to do. And once you come up with your answer to that, you need to think about what plans that answer might mean you have to put in place. If you think the status quo is going to survive, then maybe you don't need to make any plans. If you think that, well, this is the end of one system and the transition to another one, then you need to think very, very seriously about what that means. Yeah, and um, I've heard it put, I, I can't remember if you were the one to say this or someone else, but when you think about the kind of catastrophic disaster or the amount of insurance you need, if you think that you, at, this is a 20% chance of a reorganization or a new paradigm, then t- 20% should be your gold allocation type of thing. I've called gold uh, an insurance policy. Uh, right, that was just it. That reason. That was it. Right. Yeah, for just that reason. You know, if, 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 you're, if you're 20% unsure about the outcome, then it's a sensible allocation of gold because the one, you, you, know, you can be sure about gold. You can be sure that it will be there. You can be sure that it's, there's no counterparty risk, um, and you can be sure that it will survive. So that, that's an important thing to have in, in, an asset, in, a, in a world sorry, where, where assets are vaporizing, where profits have gone. You know, the stock market's back to where it was four years ago. Uh, or it was, you know, a week ago. Um, that sort of stuff can evaporate very, very quickly. So, how sure are you about the, the stability and the the, um, the longevity of the current system? Yeah, and when you look right now, like you talked about, all the stimulus is being unleashed. It's hard to keep track of everything, but. Just a matter of months ago, you talked about no one really knows what's going on in the repo market, which was pretty scary at the time because you had all these different opinions and all these different people from different parts of finance giving their opinion on things and citing the supposed reasons why the repo market was was buckling there. And then now we fast forward and there's just no debate anymore <laughs> whether that's QE or what was going on as far as the Fed buying those 30-day maturities. Now they're buying you know, all across the curve and then buying the longer dated stuff too. So when you're looking at the, all the stimulus, uh, there's a lot of things very similar to 2008. Obviously, congressional approval is needed. They, back then it was TARP and now they're, um, I forget the new acronym here of a couple new plans coming out. But what do you think the chances are now that the they're going to do all these stimulus plans again, but it's going to be the same outcome or something different. Like how how are we looking at this as far as 
Obviously, they're going to tr- throw everything plus the kitchen sink kind of thing to use the cliche. Um, and obviously, markets have stabilized a little bit uh, with that type of thinking. Of course, they're just going down, 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 and you can only have so many circuit breakers. But how are you looking at at this stimulus as far as maybe just having the market get back on its feet and people go back to normal and maybe well, blow up another bubble in the process? Yeah, no, yeah, it, yeah, exactly right. I mean, no, normal, It's you have to have your own definition of normal, right? I mean, that's, right. that's the first thing you have to figure out what that is. But look, uh, you know, the, when you talk about the markets responding to the stimulus, if you think about the timeline of what's happened here, when the Fed announced the bazooka alongside the ECB and everybody came in and, and did throw the kitchen sink at this thing, the stock market went down 12%. Yeah. The stock market repudiated that. Now, he's now had a rally. The $2 trillion that they've passed on this bill thrown on top of it, it, it doesn't really make a difference in, in the scheme of things. Let's face it. The market was dramatically oversold, um, and it was ripe for a bounce. The bounce kind of... Uh, lasted for three days, and now we're back down 3% again today. Um, so yeah, the stock market hasn't necessarily uh, bought into the stimulus this time as being the cure-all that it was before, and, and I think it's probably right in doing so. I think the reason the market went up yesterday was not um, stimulus. It was the degree to which people realize they are going to have to print money. As I, as, as I mentioned before, the, you know, where do you stop the bailouts? So the market's starting to sniff that out and go higher in, in nominal terms, understanding that there are going to be a lot more dollars floating around to buy U.S. equities. Um, you know, in real terms, we'll have to wait and see. But, but I, it, for, for, there's no way that I would sit here and think for one second that this is over and we are now, as I read this morning in, in one of the more fatuous articles, that we are now apparently in a bull market because the market's rallied 20% off the lows. Right. I mean, it, it, it's it's so utterly farcical to believe that that is the case. And for any financial journalist to write an article like that with a headline on like that and put their name to it is, is dereliction of duty, frankly. I mean, it's just appalling that you would write something like that. It's such an arbitrary level. This market is not done shaking itself out. Um, I, I, I think we will make new lows. Uh, and, and it worries me that when we do, it's going to be post-stimulus. It's going to be post uh, them saying we're going to throw the kitchen sink at it. And it's going to start making new lows because suddenly the lack of growth is going to matter. Um, you know, Poor GDP numbers are going to matter. The, the chances are that the fallout from an economic standpoint that that results from this lasts longer rather than shorter. You know, people are going to be slower to go back to work. They're going to be slower to go out to the store and spend money. They're going to be slower to rehire people. Um, and the longer this situation goes on and the, the closer it gets to next year's flu season, the bigger the problem gets because you know, next year, I'm pretty sure that COVID-19, or maybe they call it COVID-20 next year, I don't know, will be with us again. And what do you think happens when the first case of COVID gets reported somewhere in November, December, January? People are going to remember this and they're going to get fearful again. And they're going to, you know, they won't self-isolate, but they will they will go out less. They will, they will remember this. And so the chance of a recovery, uh, which ultimately is what this needs for the for the economy to get back on track in order for the stock market to become uh, a more fairly valued is, I think, a long way off. 
And if people think that having Mnuchin talk about the numbers now being irrelevant and that we expect a, a very swift bounce and we can see strong economic growth in the second half, well, I, I think for, for 10, 20 years, we've been able to say those sort of things and the market's reacted to them. I, I think, as I said, I think the whole paradigm is shifting. And if that's the case, I don't think the market is going to take the words of a Mnuchin and and rally strongly just on the promise of 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 a, of a Fed um, of a Treasury Secretary telling you the economy is going to be okay. Right, and you talked on the Peak Prosperity podcast about where the growth is going to come from across the globe, and as you just mentioned, everyone is hoping for this organic growth, and especially right now to return the economy to normal, get everyone back to work. That's probably going to be on a, on a longer time horizon than people are even talking about right now. But when you look at the global growth around the world, as you talked about in the past, it already looks tepid. Um, you know, maybe you can look at China, especially maybe India. But other than that, you know, Europe, Japan, the U.S. are, are not great. U.S. were okay, I guess, as far as demographics and when you look at growth. But are we looking at a period now where the growth is going to be investors and market participants are expecting the growth to just literally come from central banks and, and printing money instead of like real organic growth? And will that even work or how does that play out? Well, I mean, of course, that, that isn't growth. I mean, that's, that's, that's the problem, right? I mean, yeah. when we get back to normal numbers, I mean, we're going to see, I mean, some truly apocalyptic Q2 GDP numbers come through. And, and all the talk now is focusing on telling people this is going to be a short-lived short dip and it'll bounce back and you know, try and ignore the numbers. But when you've got Morgan Stanley talking about a 30% decline in GDP, um, you know, these, are, these are terrifying numbers. If, if, if the sign of the world getting back to normal is going to be led by the growth numbers out of somewhere like China, for example, that's not going to cut it because no one's really mm-hmm. going to believe the numbers in China. They're just not. I mean, they've been they've been easy to be skeptical of for some time, but if China comes through this uh, and doesn't show the kind of apocalyptic numbers that the rest of the world is showing, no one's going to believe them. And in a world where numbers that we can hopefully rely on to a greater degree in in you know, places like the EU and Japan and the US and the UK, if those numbers are as weak as they potentially could be, that's the only growth that's really going to matter to people. They're going to want to get a sense on what accurate numbers are. And if the US uh, bounces back and we end up with, you know, 1% or 1.5% growth, then the S&P is is not fairly valued for that. And the same can be said for the stocks in Europe and the same can be said a place like Australia, where a recession is going to is going to turn the country upside down, the UK, all these countries um, need growth to be decent. And and I at this point I struggle to see where that's that's going to come from. I mean, we don't know what's going to happen in the short term, but uh, this is why a lot of governments are trying desperately to stop companies laying off workers because I think they realise that once they lay them off, they're not going to when we get the V-shaped bounce that they're all hoping for, they're not going to go and hire them all back again. They're going to be much more cautious. So if you can stop them laying them off in the first place, I think it's an important thing to try and do. Um, we're in the very early days of this. And how it plays out, anyone who tells you categorically how it's going to play out is out of their mind. I, I think you have to uh-huh. try and work out your best case guess 
And I think given the nature of this dislocation, then taking an optimistic view, which has been a sensible thing to do over the last 10 years because of the way markets have bounced back on, on the stimulus and on the amount of money sloshing around, taking the optimistic view has been a, a profitable strategy on many occasions. If we are changing, as I contended at the top of the show, then it may well be that taking the cautious approach might be a more sensible way to look into the future if that's the case. Again, it, it exacerbates the changing um, environment around us. Yeah, and when you look at the last crisis during 2008, there was a lot of QE from around the world. and We had the Mario Draghi, whatever it takes, and we had all of these uh, bullets being thrown by the Fed. And the end result of that was people said, okay, QE is not inflationary. You can get into the mechanics of how that works, of basically a swap for treasuries to, to bank reserves, and the inflation was really felt in asset prices. And now during this new kind of regime that we're seeing here, we're, there's been a lot of talk about helicopter money and um, things like UBI and uh, more generally just you know giving money to the people and especially from a lot of the democratic candidates and and even on the republican side you know the infrastructure spending and things like that so when you look at the fiscal side we've already seen now everyone's going to be getting a check it looks like for around twelve hundred dollars now there's some limitations there you're going to be phased out if if you make a certain amount of money and things like that but when you look at this new phase could this be the catalyst for inflation that p- people were missing with the last cut kind of stimulus plan because it was more with the quantitative easing? And now they're going to be doing the QE also, which is the large-scale as- asset purchases, plus uh, UBI and more fiscal uh, stimulus. Well, the, the problem the Fed has had has been the, the, the plummeting velocity of money. Right? They couldn't get that money into the economy and moving around, which is why they failed to generate the inflation they hoped they would. Mm-hmm. They bailed out the banks. They bailed out the asset owners. Um, they've bailed out capital. They just haven't bailed out labor. And now if, if if this time around they actually go and bail out labor, which, let's face it, is the sensible thing to do. It's the necessary thing to do. Or we really are going to have uh, another Great Depression. That money will go straight into the economy. It's, it's going to be spent. It's not going to be used to purchase uh, assets. So it's it's hard to see a way in which this doesn't raise the inflation rate. It's very hard to see how, how it doesn't do that. Uh, there are far more competent inflationary scholars than me, but, I, but I, I'd love for someone to tell me where to read about an instance like this where money was given to uh, the citizens directly in massive quantities and it didn't end up as inflationary. I mean, I, I would generally be interested if there is a case where that's happened. Uh, and and the inflation hasn't followed because I'd like to read about it to understand what happened. But um, if you are going to give everybody a check for $1,200, incidentally, at the same time, when a lot of cases, you are going to suspend their rent payments, suspend their mortgage payments for them. Um, People, for the most part, uh, that's probably unfair, but a lot of people are not exactly responsible with money. So if you take away their outgoings and you give them $1,200, I'm sorry. A lot of it is going to go. It's going to go on. I think most, holidays. I think most of it will. Yeah, yeah exactly right. Will. Exactly right. So, does it help? Probably not. I, I don't know. It helps individuals. 
uh, it helps a lot of individuals who need it, which is great. Um, does it help in the whole? We're going to find out because they're going to send these checks. So let's wait and see what happens. But uh, all the reading I've done suggests uh, an inflationary outcome. And with the amount of debt hanging over the world right now, uh, inflation is is not going to be great for uh, the real estate market. It's not going to be great for people's cost of living. It's great for central banks um, and all the guys that, that hold all the debt at the sovereign level. But um, rising interest rates, particularly if uh, when it feeds through to the, the rates that these sovereigns have to uh, offer when they raise all the new debt they're going to need to, to raise, is a problem. I mean, very quickly that gets out of hand. So we're, in a, we're backed into a corner here. You know, we need inflation, but if we get it, we're screwed. So you know, <laughs> right. I don't know what the solution is. The solution is obviously this mythical 2% inflation. That's completely under control, but I think anybody that understands this knows that that is that's a unicorn. It, it's it's a it's a non-existent beast. Yeah, and I know uh, Jeffrey Gunlock from Doubling Capital brought up this point in one of his webcasts. I think it was maybe six months or a year ago, talking about if the Fed really wants to get inflation, they could definitely get inflation to send everyone a ten thousand dollar check or a, a fifty thousand dollar check. And he mentioned at the time that people were kind of surprised that he would even mention that. But he brought up the point that we actually had that in the past with with, uh, George W. Bush here in the U.S. He sent everyone, I think it was around $200. And now we're up to $1,200 and... Who knows? Who knows what we where we could go in the future as far as well, or where we we'll need to go? I think is where we we'll need to go, right? And um, I'm I'm referencing this tweet here, uh, Andrew Yang. He just tweeted out yesterday. Where did we get two trillion dollars? Yep. The American people are catching, catching on. Up, yeah. I saw that. <laughs> I thought that was pretty funny because, you know, do you think this time around people are going to get a little smarter and start questioning this stuff and start reading about central banking and, and read a little more into this, especially after going through two thousand eight? Well, sadly, I don't. Sadly, I, I I don't think people will read more about central banks because this time the money is going to land in their pockets. And who questions free money, right? <laughs> right. They just don't. So if this turned out to be another bailout of Wall Street or a bailout just of the airlines, for example, and the man in the street was left behind, then yes, I, I agree with you. I think people would would st- suddenly start to be interested. But the money's going to go in everybody's pockets. And, and uh, you know, no one is going to suddenly start questioning why they're being given 1200 bucks. Uh, they're going to. The only questions they're going to ask is why it isn't, Two grand, right? I mean, that's that's human nature. So no, I don't, I don't think people are going to connect the dots. Um, I don't think Andrew Yang perhaps meant what some people think he meant. I think I, I suspect what he meant was people are catching up that we can print money and give it to everybody, not right. just not just the banks. Whereas some people will think he meant, hang on, we're onto the central banks now. They're printing money they shouldn't be. No, 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 <laughs> right. no, no, no. That's not what he meant at all. Right. So, you know, God forbid the public does wake up and, and buy into the belief that there are no consequences for printing money. There are. They just haven't been felt yet. Yeah, that's just that's a really great way to put it. And it's so funny how this stuff is all playing out the way you and others talked about as far as the helicopter money and giving money to the people to 
you know, this is this is not a good situation, but it's, there are people warning about this and people talking about this and the work that you've been doing through the years at Real Vision and, and through your newsletter. You know, it's, a lot of the information is there if people want to find it. So, um, you know, it's, it's all out there. And so turning to lastly, let's talk a little bit about your work through your newsletter and some of the things you're thinking about there and how people can, uh, can access some of your work. Uh, yeah, sure. I, I've, been, I've been writing my letter for a decade now. I only realized this the other day. It's quite frightening. Um, wow. It's called Things That Make You Go Hum, and uh, the website is ttmygh.com. And it's just um, – it, it, it's always been an attempt to try and stimulate the conversation around what's happening, try and point out some of the things that perhaps people are missing in terms of opportunity, in terms of narrative, in terms of uh, market behavior. And, um, you know, it's something uh, I, I've had a, a great time writing. You know, Real Vision is another thing that I'm, I'm incredibly proud of. I was one of the co-founders of that. We co-founded it uh, five years ago. Um, and it's a, it's a platform that, that we hope is a, is a good alternative to traditional mainstream media. Um, you know, we, the, the idea behind it at the outset was really just to find smart financial people and talk to them. It really wasn't any more complicated than that. So you know, between those two, those two things, it, it, they've, they've both been an attempt to get high-quality information about finance and the way it interacts with the real world out in the hands of as many people as possible. Yeah, and you brought up a good point in the past about bringing people on and bringing people together to just at least listen to what they have to say because one thing that we've lost – as you've mentioned in the past, is is hearing different sides and different uh, people's opinions in order to come to a conclusion, which is something that seems like it's been lacking in the in recent years. Totally, yeah. I mean, wherever you look at the moment, everybody uh, has picked a side. You know, whether it's whether it's about the economy, whether it's about the markets, whether it's about politics, everybody's picked a side. And and once you've chosen that side. You have to have the same views as that side. You know, if you look at if you look at the reactions to to COVID, for example, it's a perfect most recent example. For the most part, and not everybody, but for the most part, people's views on the virus tend to coincide with their political leanings. It's it's extraordinary to me as I look through it, um, and and that's that's kind of who we've become. And, and and for me, one of the most dangerous things you can do is is be dogmatic in your views, dogmatic in your opinions. And, and confine yourself to echo chambers. You know, the, the, the best thing you can do is find really, really smart people who you disagree with and just listen to them and, and hear what smart people who hold a different view to you think and how they think and what they think. And, and does that change your view? And it's okay to disagree with someone, um, but not on a point of principle. You know, you should listen to them and, and understand the reasons they hold the views they do if they're intelligent. And if it's someone just screaming with a megaphone in the street, then fine, ignore them. But if it's a thoughtful individual who just happens to think about a certain situation or a certain market or a certain asset in a different way to you, the most valuable thing you can do is understand the other side of the argument and, and, and then be courageous enough to decide to discard it if you think that that smart person has got it wrong. It's perfectly okay. But, but to, to discount someone because they think differently to you is, is a terrible, terrible trap that we seem to be falling into very quickly, unfortunately. 
Yeah, and for your newsletter, talk a little bit about the audience it's geared for. Is are you targeting institutional investors or retail subscribers, or who could be able to benefit from um, from your work? Yeah, you know, I've, I've, I've tried to make it as accessible as I can. You know, I, you know I've I've spent thirty five years in finance, and so you know, you know, I, I I talk about finance at a level of someone that's been immersed in it for that amount of time. But I try really hard to make it accessible, um, and I, you know, I try and use humor and I try and use history to make points to to help uh, educate people. And and the, the 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 subscriber base that I have suggests that it that it plays equally well to to finance professionals um, and people who are really wanting to learn more about it. So you know, I try very hard to to bridge that gap. And so far, touch wood, I, you know, I've had a measure of success in doing that. Great. We're going to link uh, the website in the show notes here and the um, information on how to subscribe. And we recommend that uh, people go check that out. I know I've heard um, Eric Townsend talk about it's one of the first things he opens and reads and others as well, uh, talking about how they really like your writing style and the way that you approach uh, thinking about the world and bringing your expertise and your kind of slant on things in a way that you can't find in any anywhere else so uh we really appreciate you having you on grant and stay safe out there the <laughs> same to you thanks very much for having me it's been it's been fun okay thanks grant take care bye-bye Thanks for joining us today. If you enjoyed the show, we encourage you to tell a friend. You can also support the show for as little as a dollar a month through our Anchor website. Just go to www.jellydonutpodcast.com. If you have feedback, find us on Twitter, at JellyDonutPod. Or you can contact us via email at JellyDonutPodcast at ProtonMail.com. As a reminder, all opinions expressed by guests are solely their own and do not reflect the views of their employer or any other affiliated entity. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be used as a basis for investment decisions or advice.